This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. a while and I am very excited to welcome to the show uh, Professor Coretha Mitchell. She is an award-winning author, literary historian, cultural critic, and professional development expert. Her first book, Living with Lynching, won awards from the American Theater and Drama Society and from the Society for the Study of American Women Writers. Her second monograph, From Slave Cabins to the White House, yes, she said that with her full chest, Homemade Citizenship in African American Culture appeared in August of 2020 and was named a best book of 2020 by Ms. Magazine and Black Perspectives. I could literally spend the rest of our time reading from her amazing bio, but I think you would rather hear from her instead. Professor Coretha Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us today. It is a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It is really an honor. The honor is mine. And I, I, I must apologize. I called you Professor Corey because I was thinking about your Twitter handle, Prof Corey. Uh, but we're going to give you your full honorifics today, Dr. Mitchell, uh, because we know how our community <laughs> responds to those things. Um, you had written an article uh, recently and, and really just a phenomenal piece of writing called Identifying White Mediocrity. And uh, you introduced a phrase that I had not been familiar with called know your place aggression, a form of self-care. And when I saw that, I said, oh, now this is something worth discussing. Uh, Before we do a deep dive into the article, and and because we are, uh, while we have a lot of academics in the audience, not everyone in our audience comes from the same academic background. In your article, you reference black literary theory. Uh, and you and you refer to it in a way that's designed to talk about its usefulness in this time. For people who are not as familiar, can you talk with us about what you mean by black literary theory and the function that it provides in helping us to think more clearly about where we are in our society today? Oh, sure. Thank you so much for that question. Well, um, I'm a professor of English, and part of what that means is that I study literature, but I'm really drawn to... Um, the study of literature and what I'm calling black literary theory, because I understand the power of words and deeds, you know, in in my sphere, we would say discourses and practices, but what that really means is words and deeds. What are the most common words and deeds of a space that will create the culture. So in the United States, what is the most common word and deed? Um, You know, you have a white person who does something racist, whether it's on the playground or in your office. And the most common response is for everybody to look at the person of color, because we all know that the person of color is the one who's going to be judged about whether they responded with anger or dignity. And the white person is never actually Um, you know, asked to hold themselves to a higher standard. That's Mm. the most common word indeed in those scenarios. So understanding the power of what is most commonly said and done is why I'm so interested in what I do across the different forms that I do it. So being an English professor is not just about the literature. It's about Um, looking at the most common words and deeds. So in this article, Black Literary Theory is just my way of saying that if we're going to study literature and words and deeds 
and we're invested in the experiences that black people have, then we need to be ready to understand what we haven't been able to appreciate when we look around at the literature that black people have created against the worst odds. And we, when we look around um, our everyday lives. And so what I was invested in doing is having other black literary scholars think very seriously about the role of black success in shaping mm. what we see, not assuming that black people are always protesting and resisting. In fact, they are just pursuing success and American culture is designed to attack them at every sign of their success. And mm. that's what I wanted my colleagues to start paying a lot more attention to. I'm going to ask you about how successful you were in that call to action after we talk a bit about what you really tease out so well in this article. Uh, can you define for the audience what you mean? And I know what I, I mean by this, but I want you to tell us what you mean by the phrase white mediocrity. Sometimes we have these conversations and everyone brings their own definitions to the discourse. I want to make sure that we are all using this term in the way you intended for it to be used. What did you mean by that? Oh, yes. White mediocrity is a way to really get clear about how low the standards are for white people to have exceptional success. Mm. They don't have to be exceptional to have exceptional success. Our systems are designed to make sure that we manufacture merit, that, that we look at white mediocrity, but what we see is merit. That someone has to be egregious like Donald Trump for us to even pause and be like, huh, does he belong in that position? So white mediocrity is about us really getting serious about how low the standards can be, um, how every institution in the United States is set up to make sure that the standards can be incredibly low. So white mediocrity is treated as if it is merit. And I need us to get very clear about mm. how not impressive folk are despite being in high positions. Now, Professor Mitchell, I got to be honest with you. I, well, one, I'm cis, like I'm, I'm finger snapping and, and all of it on this side, but I'm going to put on my professional voice now. I'm going to put on my professional black voice. And I got to be honest with you, because as I'm thinking about what, how you have defined white mediocrity, it feels as though we see examples of it everywhere. And I want to make sure I'm not reading too much into it or like overusing the phrase and, and, and how it shows up. But are you talking about what happens when like I'm in a boardroom and a bunch of white men are in the boardroom and I say a thing and nobody says anything but then the white man says it and it sounds like it, it fell like manna from heaven is it is it something that uh you know or, or is it more like uh, my child goes to school your child goes to school my child uh gets straight a's and people are shocked your child gets straight b's and people are like yay go timmy like can you give us some examples of what this, how this shows up in in real life Oh, my God. Those are perfect examples. And I think part of what I want to do to make very clear why I'm so invested in it in this is let's step back and just I, I want us to understand that part of the reason white mediocrity even comes into play, because I want people to understand know your place aggression, the reason white mediocrity comes into play is because I need us to understand all of the effort that has to go into diminishing the achievements 
of anyone who isn't the archetypal citizen, anyone who isn't the straight white man, or even if we're looking on a playground, anyone who isn't the cisgender white boy. I need us to get very clear about how everything in our society is set up to make sure that that archetypal citizen, the straight white man, succeeds and is affirmed in his right to belong, whether he measures up to what the country says it respects or not. So this is the reason your child example matters, right? A a, a white child who isn't perfectly well-behaved is still treated like a child. Mm. A black or brown child is set on the school-to-prison pipeline. So what I need us to do, though, is not simply look at the disadvantage for children of color, I want us to understand the unearned advantage that's already being grafted onto white children. So this is the reason why the fact that we see examples of white mediocrity being treated as merit everywhere we turn, the fact that we're going to see those examples constantly is exactly why we need to understand why it's related to know your place aggression. Because the bottom line is this. We're making sure in this society that the archetypal citizen can enjoy success and belonging while holding themselves and each other to low standards. How else are you constantly affirmed in your success and your right to belong, even though you don't measure up to the standards you claim to care about? How else can you do that except that you make sure that everybody else's merit and their right to belong is not only questioned, but counted at every freaking turn. That's how you do it. So they have to go together. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. So you broke my brain. Um, that that's been happening a lot lately. When I bring on smart people, there is a line in your article where you say, uh, to put it plainly, when I look around my campus and the profession more generally, I ask myself, quote, would that person even be here if they weren't white? And I often, I most often find myself answering, nope, exclamation point. And I want everyone listening right now, when you are thinking about the people in your life who are examples of what Dr. Mitchell is talking about, ask yourself, would that person be in that position? Would they have that authority? And would they slang it around the way they do if they weren't white? And if the answer is nope, there goes an example of white mediocrity. It's like finding one out in the wilderness, but they're, they're everywhere. Uh, so Dr. Mitchell, you know, you, you go on to talk about know your place aggression. And while I recognize what you were talking about, this was the first I had heard of this term. I don't know if you were the first to use this term. Uh, you are certainly credited with that. And so I'm going to give you that credit as well. Uh, but what is know your place aggression and how does it sit opposite of our understanding of white mediocrity? Thank you so much for that. First, what I want to say is I believe that whatever you practice, you get better at. And so just like your show has this um, moment of gratitude as a practice that you're encouraging your listeners to participate in, Mm -hmm. that's powerful because practice is literally what structures our lives. So the reason why this article talks about these things in terms of self-care is because I'm encouraging literally a practice of looking around and saying, would this person be here if they weren't white? Because when you do that, you start to notice how you're never encouraged to pay attention to how little they measure up to the stated standards. Mm -hmm. Now, they made the standards. 
right? In corporate America, they made the standards. In education, they made the standards. In the legal profession, they made the standards, but they still don't measure up. So looking around yourself and noticing that they don't measure up is powerful because it allows you to stop putting so much stock into what they believe. (laughs) Okay, so Mm. know your place aggression I define as the flexible dynamic array of forces that answer the achievements of marginalized groups such that their success brings aggression as often as praise. And what I want to make clear is that I moved to that definition. It wasn't where I was in the beginning. I was in the beginning. I understood that the success brings violence. I understood that through the lens of African-Americans specifically, right? So my first book, Living with Lynching, is about plays about lynching written before 1930. And what the authors of those plays made so crystal clear to me is that African-Americans have always understood that their success beckons the mob. Black Mm. success beckons the mob. You do not get targeted by the mob because you're a criminal. You get Mm. targeted because white people want to put you back in your so-called proper place. Oh, you want a fair price for your crop? Well, you don't know your proper place. Oh, you want to protect your, your daughter or your wife from sexual harassment or sexual abuse? Oh, well, you don't know your proper place. Let me put you back in your proper place and terrorize your entire community. So Black Success Beckons the Mob is the most important lesson I learned from writing Living with Lynching. But once I started seeing that, I couldn't get away from, and of course the Obamas ended up being a perfect example of this right in the current moment. And so once I couldn't get away from how much it took to diminish the achievements of black people, I started looking at how much it takes to diminish the achievements of anyone who isn't straight, anyone who isn't white, male, all of that. And so I moved from saying black success beckons the mob to the success of marginalized groups inspires aggression as often as praise, because I need us to start really paying attention to how do you keep it so that Straight white men can hold themselves to low standards or no standards at all and still succeed and have their right to belong. They can only do that by always countering the belonging of everybody else. So I just want to make it clear that Know Your Place Aggression really was a movement from how thoroughly I understood how much violence was being used against black people, right? And for me, violence is not just physical. It's also discursive or symbolic, right? Like discursive violence is a perfect example is a stereotype. A stereotype will dictate how you're being treated literally no matter what you do, right? I'm a black woman walking in a store and everybody's looking at me, watching me like a hawk while I watch this white woman actually steal something. So my Mm. behavior is not determining how I'm being treated. (laughs) That is discursive violence because the stereotype has so much power to determine how I'm treated regardless of what I'm doing. So part of what I'm invested in is we need to understand that violence, whether it is physical or discursive like that stereotype, violence is always about dictating who belongs and who does not who should feel comfortable taking up space and who should not. And if we understand that that's the purpose of violence, then we understand that you don't get victimized by violence because you did something wrong. You get victimized by violence targeted because someone wants to put you in your so-called proper place. 
What are these bomb threats at HBCUs about? Except mm, that come on we're now. succeeding and we want to put you in your so-called proper place. We don't want you to feel comfortable taking space in PWIs, but we also don't want you to feel comfortable taking space in HBCUs. It's similar to, right, bombing churches. So here you are in a society that makes sure that the only safe spaces you have are, I don't know, your black home or your black church. Well, I'm going to make sure you don't even feel comfortable there. What better way of telling you that you are not a citizen and you do not belong? So please, I just need us all to understand the violence is know your place aggression. It's about telling you that you don't belong. It's about telling you that your so-called proper place is a lower place. I need us to understand that the violence chases us because we succeed, not because we're doing something wrong. Wow. Okay. All right. So we're going to need a part two, but right now we're going to keep on this part one because I have so many questions. All right. If the violence follows our success, and which means that I think if I'm understanding you correctly, there is no success level that we could ever reach that would prevent that violence from coming. And I'm saying it that way intentionally. So if you could respond to that statement first, and then I'm going to pick it back up. Oh, my God. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And so, okay. So first of all, yes, you're right. Know your place aggression is a term that I coined. And, and that comes from the movement I said from Black success beckons the mob to the more complex definition. And what I want you to know is that the term is deliberately both precise and cumbersome, right? Mm. Know your place aggression is a lot. It's a, it's a mouthful. And, and the reason it's a mouthful is because I want to remind you, notice how much effort it takes to diminish your achievement. Wow. If it didn't take all that effort, right? Then it would be about something else. It might be actually that you're doing something wrong. The mm. reason it takes so much effort is because you are succeeding over and over again. And so your point about um, can we outachieve it? No. The, mm. the, the violence is going to accompany every um, version of our success. And, and to me, to me, that is not... Um, a reason for despair, it's important for me to understand it because then I don't waste my time thinking that if I had done X, Y, or Z mm, differently, mm, mm, then this wouldn't have happened to me. Come so on. that's why I need us to understand that it's coming from your success because otherwise you're going to be constantly second guessing yourself and that drains our energy and that's part of the point of it. Mm. And, and le last thing I want to say about this is you know, your question about the heights or the, it also makes me think about part of why I was invested in doing an analysis that was based on Know Your Place aggression, specifically in African-American literature, from literally slave cabins to the White House. Because part of what I want us to understand is that our smallest successes, like Harriet Jacobs, the author of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which is a slave narrative, She's literally in bondage. Mm. And I wanted us to understand that her victory of knowing that she is a person and not a piece of property was a victory that the United States did, meet, did not leave unchecked. 
That was a small victory, we would say, right, to just remember you're human. But it's a big enough victory that not only inspires the violence of her so-called owner, but also inspires the violence of the fugitive slave acts from her United States government. Mm. So I don't care how small the success is. American culture is designed to answer it with violence. So don't think you're going to outperform it. The Obama showed you that. <laughs> oh, Lord, like, they did. Right? Wow. So, okay. <laughs> All right, let's pause here. Let's just pause for a minute. Let's unpack just a little bit. If that is the case, what I'm hearing from you is, one, I need to stop thinking about how white folks going to see me because all they're going to see, and if they are committed to this way of, of to upholding this system, all they are going to see is someone who is moving outside of the appropriate zone for which they determine I should be. And I'm too uppity. We should just presume you're going to get the uppity label and keep moving forward. Yep. But then we have these realities where, like, right now, you have uh, uh, students who, you know, unlike the, the original, uh, one of the original cases that was challenging uh, affirmative action at the collegiate level where Abigail Fisher, who was a mediocre white student who had mediocre grades and she was upset that her mediocrity was still uh, trumped, and I'm using that phrase intentionally, by black students who did better than her, who got accepted into law schools that she was rejected from. Today, we have students at Harvard, Asian students, who have decided they are going to look past the mediocre white colleagues that there are also students in their building in their programs. They're going to look past uh, the fact that uh, 40% of Harvard students are, are legacy students, meaning the only reason them students got there is because their daddy and their mommy wrote a check or their daddy and their mommy went there, but they could be completely mediocre and substandard, subpar, and still have a seat there. Yep. And these Asian students have decided that they are going to look at the consideration that colleges and universities use for race. Now, this is not to say that Harvard says, oh, if you're black, you're in. Cool. If you're white, you're out. No. What they do is they look at the entire person, and if they are also aware of your race, they can consider that as well. It's not saying that all black people automatically get in. Trust me, they don't. But when we're talking about this idea that there is a proper place for black people, is that lawsuit that, that is seeking to prevent universities and colleges from even considering race categories uh, from their admissions policies when there are all 40 some odd percent of the population is upheld by students who do not have to demonstrate academic prowess? Would that be an example of how other groups of color also see black people as properly occupying a substandard position in our society? Absolutely. I mean, anti-blackness is one of the most important things about the foundation of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't go away. I mean, part of what Know Your Place Aggression helps us understand is that American citizenship itself is based on the exclusion of black people. Like, that is what it is literally based on, right? First, we have, you know, dispossession, violent dispossession of indigenous peoples, but you also have very deliberately, while the definition of citizenship is changing in the 1700s, for example, while it's changing and not totally solidified, part of what makes it solidified becomes um, excluding black people. So there's no question that American citizenship as a concept is based on excluding black people. And so, you know, James Baldwin, of course, is one of the people who taught us that, um, you know, part of what you do to show your Americanness is learn the N-word, right? Mm. So the the way that anti-blackness is set up, it 
reminds everyone that the main thing you don't want to be is associated with black people. The farther you can push away from them, the better. So part of what your example helps us understand is that keeping whiteness invisible, treating whiteness as if it is neutral, and that's what you just described, right? We're not even going to question the white people who are there as legacies. The whiteness is a non-issue. This is similar to what people, what institutions do when they're bragging about their so-called diversity efforts and they talk about how they hired five black people over the past five years, but they don't say we hired, you know, 78 white people in the same time period, right? Like all of that is about keeping whiteness off the table so that you never actually put an objective standard onto whiteness. I want us to see that as the way that we treat white mediocrity as if it is merit. Therefore, what we are doing, be clear, as a society, is we are manufacturing merit for whiteness. And then for white people who don't even have the decency to be mediocre, the ones who are worse, the ones who are despicable, Mm. for them, we actually manufacture innocence. As David Leonard has taught us, right? I use that example about how literally serial killers in the United States are straight white men, and we manufacture innocence for them, right? That those criminals are treated better than black and brown victims of crime. So everything about the affirmative action case that you're talking about, I just want us to see it as manufacturing merit for whiteness so that or through the function of never actually putting the objective standard on the white people. As long as you're keeping black and other people of color in a position to fight for their, to to defend themselves, then that means whiteness never has to measure up to an objective standard. Mm, My God. Uh, you are preaching and, and the Twitter streets are fully affirming that the church is saying amen. We have people giving you applauses. <laughs> we got people talking about she is preaching uh, because you really, really are. My, my question for you now becomes, what do we do with this? Because now I'm ready to point out white mediocrity wherever I see it. However, I, I lead a racial justice law center where our, we're literally charged with centering on the needs for black people. So my ability to point out white mediocrity is a part of my job description. <laughs> it's part of what I have to do. <laughs> Most people are not quite so privileged. And I know that you are at the amazing Ohio State University uh, where I actually almost went to get my PhD had I not gone to law school for Africana Studies. If it wasn't Temple, it was going to be Ohio State. So I know you are in good stead. You are surrounded by, or at least you you have a number of great colleagues that you can look to. I don't want to presume everyone thinks the same at that place. But what are we to do with this when I am in, uh, let's think about Lurie, you know, 10 years ago when I'm in corporate America, I'm a corporate lawyer and I'm seeing white media abounding all around me while my black excellence is being confronted with know your place aggression. Maybe I'm an educator and I'm seeing white mediocrity everywhere, but I can't do anything about it because I'm only one of three black teachers who have to all be excellent because as soon as we're not excellent, then we get the boot. What do we do? How do we challenge this this concept and, and how do we incorporate it into our daily assessment, that practice that you mentioned, and how do we protect ourselves from the harm of it now that we're aware of what it is? This is this is such an important question, and I don't pretend to be able to answer it as completely um, right now as I feel I answer it in all of my work. So I really do ask that people 
um, look at CarithaMitchell.com and look at the resources that are attached to my um, October 2021 keynote address to the Ford Fellows uh, Conference because I put a lot of resources there. But here's my main thing, and it's crucial. I, I, I need people to understand that the main reason I wanted this to be in print is because I wanted those of us in marginalized groups to understand what we were up against because too many of us give a lot of our energy to second-guessing our behavior when these violent things happen to us. Mm. And I just want us to be able to, within ourselves, not everyone can call it out as vocally as I do every day, um, but I want people to at least be able to understand it and notice it so that they can let it roll off their back more, right? Like, if you mm. understand what's happening, that it's happening because you are doing everything right, not because you're doing something wrong, then it allows you not to actually take on this imposter syndrome stuff, right? Wow. When you look at those white people and notice that nothing about them is objectively excellent, even though they're being treated mm. as if they are excellent, when you notice that, then you don't put so much stock in the opinions of those other colleagues who their success was based on the fact that they were treated as if they were qualified just because they were white, not because they actually were measuring up to objective standards. To my mind, that means that we will spend a lot less energy second-guessing ourselves, dealing with wow. imposter syndrome. That is powerful to me because when you spend less of your time doing that, you can actually do the work that, that you feel you are set out here to do, whatever that um, arena is that you're doing your work in. So wow. I make sure that people understand Know Your Place Aggression, not because I think they're going to call it out publicly like I do. I just want them to know it within themselves so that they can shrug some of that Know Your Place Aggression off mm. much more easily than if they didn't recognize it. Because mm. I have had people who are in totally different, like banking industry, all kinds of industries, write to me and say, now that I know what this is, I'm able to label it in my own head and move on. And yes. to me, that's what's most important. But I'll admit this to you, too, is that I have had white people say that once they started noticing white mediocrity being rewarded, once they started noticing how their black and brown colleagues were punished for their success, once mm -hmm. they started noticing it, they started to see that simply going along is not holding themselves to a high enough standard. That mm -hmm. the only way for them to hold themselves to an actual standard is to actively challenge the way that white mediocrity gets to parade as if it's merit. And so that's a secondary benefit if white people actually hold themselves to higher standards. That's a secondary benefit. It's a beautiful benefit because I think that's the only way we're going to improve is if white people actually hold themselves and each other to higher standards. But in the meantime, I just want to empower those of us in marginalized groups to know that our energy is much better spent not putting a lot of stock into the opinions of people whose success really is owed to, um, you know, just their being white and being assumed to be fabulous just because they're white. Because, I mean, mm. that's literally how our society is set up. 
You are freeing some minds today. We actually have somebody on. We have a couple folks on. We're only going to be, I think, time to get one caller on. Uh, do you mind if we take this call? It's from someone who might have a oh, testimony sure. that's in line with what you were just talking about. I believe this is me, Bianca from Massachusetts. Uh, thank you so much for calling Bianca on line three. Uh, what is it that you would like to say this morning? You're on with Professor Coretha Mitchell. I just wanted to say thank you for everything that you are talking about right now. Like I'm having a physical reaction to this mm. conversation. And my experience has been with pink hat ladies for the past 15 years. And I phrase pink hat ladies as white women, not just white women. This past year has been other people that we put under the BIPOC umbrella, but more specifically our Latino sisters. And they say they want equality with us. They will march for equality with us. But once we start sitting at that table, they feel inferior. And then they start waving their privilege card in front of us to let us know our place. And that's been my experience for the past 15 years in my field. So today on Black History Month, I have submitted my resignation letter to my organization to let them know they have two more weeks because they don't deserve my presence. And I said it a little bit more professionally than that. But I did start it with Happy Black History Month so they can read in between the lines. And I felt very empowered in doing that. So I feel the irony of just everything that you're talking about. I want to give a shout out to Urban View and everybody else. I feel like I need Dr. Robin Smith later on on the Karen Hunter show. But just thank you guys because you've empowered me. Shout out to Minda Hearts as well. Her book has empowered me. And I just want to encourage everybody, don't shrink. You know who you are. They know who you are. You are the gift. And they have to pay you for it. And just we have to step out of this mediocrity mediocrity ourselves of shrinking. No Mm. more. Wow. Bianca, I got to ask you before we play the round of applause button to congratulate you. Did you had you planned on submitting your resignation before you listened to Dr. Coretha Mitchell or was did that happen after you I heard did. what she said? I did. Okay. Everything, you know, the stars, the stars aligned. I accepted another position who sees my value and is paying me a $5,000 cash sign on bonus. And I Come get a shout now. out. And I'm just, I'm appreciative because people will see you for who you are. And when we get comfortable and complacent, we think that's the best of everything that life has to offer. And it's Mm -hmm. not. So I just really want everybody, especially my black sisters and brothers to shine, know your value and just tap into the real I am of who you are. Come on. Now we're going to give you a round of applause, Bianca. Congratulations. Congratulations. That right there, Dr. Mitchell, that really is an example of everything that you just spoke about. This idea of us refusing to shrink, right? Refusing to capitulate to the mediocrity standard that you have so beautifully outlined for us. That feels like reclaiming a bit of our superpower. There's a danger in that because when you're reclaiming your superpower from people who have this entire system that was structured to stop you from being as super as you are, there are some risks that come with that. But it feels to me like the only real way for us to live our lives as we fully intended, I believe before we got here, is for us to refuse to shrink and to take up our fair share of the sun. What do you say to that? Yes, I mean, first, many congratulations to Bianca, because, you know, at the end of the day, 
our health and sanity and, you know, creating situations where the affirmation that we deserve is flowing our way is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're just gifts that only we can give ourselves, right? And so that idea of not shrinking is aligned with giving yourself the gift that only you can, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm all for that. Um, the thing that she said that also st stood out to me, I mean, so many things did. One of the other things that stood out is this idea that um, once we come to the table, somehow the, the, the value of the table diminishes, right? Yeah, and we're yeah. all familiar with the anti-Blackness of that. We're all familiar with the idea that as soon as something opens to a wider group of people, then automatically it's less prestigious somehow. Mm -hmm. And I just want us to recognize that that is literally built into how American culture is structured. So that's why I talk in terms of the most commonly said and done things for us to understand this as a cultural phenomenon, because part of what I want us to know is that, again, no matter how successful you are, these examples of aggression are going to follow you. It doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. And mm. so part of what I want us to do is not discount um, ourselves, even in the moments when we don't decide that we're going to fight this particular battle, right? The battles will never stop coming for us to fight. So I also want us to give ourselves some grace that just mm. because I didn't fight that battle, all of a sudden now I'm a sellout. I didn't mm. fight that battle. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not, you know, standing up in my complete fabulousness. Like, that's not what I'm saying either. I'm saying that I need I us to that. have some dynamism with the way that we navigate this violent culture, because the violence of the culture is not going to slow down, regardless of how we operate because our success is what they're trying to diminish. Our mm. happiness is what they're trying to diminish. Our joy is what they're trying to diminish. When all of those things are under attack, you better believe the attacks won't stop. So I just want to make sure that we have the tools we need to navigate, to preserve our energy so that we can support ourselves and each other. Mm. Dr. Coretha sounds like Aretha. I noted that from your bio. Mitchell, you have lit the world on fire. Uh, at least our Urban View world is, is completely enthralled with everything you are saying right now. Uh, I'm going to have uh, Shayla, if you can please reach, I'm going to have my people reach out to your people because we clearly need to have part two and part three of this conversation. You have tapped into something that I think is really ripe for this time. And I am so glad and grateful for you taking the time to put these thoughts together, producing this body of work and really allowing us to unpack it in a way that I think is liberatory for all of us. Thank you so much for being here. You already mentioned your website, which is CoretaMitchell.com. Hold on to the applause. We're going to give her a full round of applause in just a second. That's K-O-R-I-T-H-A-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. -L. That is her website, CoretaMitchell.com. Uh, Dr. Coretha Mitchell. Uh, we're going to give her all the honorifics. Uh, how else can people follow you and, and stay connected to your work? Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. I'm just truly honored to share with everyone. On Twitter, I'm at Prof Corey, P-R-O-F-K-O-R-I. Um, and that's the easiest way for people to um, catch up with me besides the website you just gave. But, Loree, I just want to say thank you so much for this opportunity. I've heard from so many people over the years about how 
knowing the term know your place aggression has allowed them to shed some burdens they had no business carrying. And so it means a lot to me to be able to reach more people with this idea that will help them walk through this world with less baggage. So thank you so much. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Professor Coretha Mitchell, it is our pleasure to have you. Don't worry, my people reaching out to your people. We're going to bring you back for the people uh, because we really appreciate <laughs> everything that you had to say today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.